My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. journeying through the Bible on a chronological method, and we've got over 350 people online doing that day by day, and uh, we just want to encourage you to daily read and reflect on God's Word, and what better way to do it than walk together as a congregation, so let's read aloud our passage from Peter as he says these words. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. Pray with me. Father, thank you that you are going to reveal yourself today through your words. From a prophet that's thousands of years old from our timeline and our thinking, but the message is just as relevant today as it was back in the day. It was a different people, a different time, a different culture, but today in this moment, we need to hear your word. We need to thirst after what you speak about as you reveal yourself, God, move in our hearts to worship you. We pray in your name, amen, amen. So go ahead and grab a seat, and um, I want to talk a little bit about worship, and when I say the word worship, we might think that's synonymous with the word singing. Jake and the worship team led us. Uh, the other Jake uh, has been leading us, and we just need a couple more Jakes. And then Aaron will come back after his sabbatical. Uh, Aaron does an awesome job leading us in worship, right? And that means standing and singing. That means closing our eyes. That means raising our hands. That means that. Clapping, yeah. What if we did all that and we didn't worship? Is, is, is that synonymous with worship? This last week, I took my oldest son, Josiah. Uh, we're Head and Heart fans, and we went to the McMiniman Edgefield, and um, we got to enjoy a concert, and it was awesome. The sun was out. It was great. Uh, we were just enjoying it. But as we were encouraged by one another and talking in this great father-son moment, you know, we get there, and, and I'm kind of amazed as I look around, I see thousands of people standing up, clapping, raising their arms, singing words, and some of them closing their eyes. Even some of them, dare I say, if you're a Baptist, hold your heart, dancing, right? 
were they worshiping? They were doing all of those things. What if that's all we're doing? And if so, should we sell tickets and make money on a Sunday morning, right? Is there more to worship than just what we do on a Sunday? And is it possible that we come in and we evaluate worship in this understanding, how was worship today? Meaning, did I engage? Did the leader lead well? Did I like the songs? Did they flow well? Were they exciting for me? Were they loud enough? Did I feel it? Did I emote? What if we stop asking that question, how was worship today, as if we're talking about this team up here, and we walk away asking this question, how was my worship today? How, how did I do connecting with God? In the community of faith, how did I do in the church, the body of Christ on the earth, how did I do reflecting my love for Jesus? It's because I think it's easy for us to think that worship is something somebody else does for us. And I think it's possible for us to go through motions, uh, even just to come to church week after week, and begin to disconnect from an actual experience of encountering God. It's easy to do that. We go through the motions that, with a lot of relationships, right? We go through that, if you're single, we go through that in friendships. If you're married, we go through that in marriage, right? We go through that in parenting at work. We just kind of, you know, check the clock and punch the clock and we do our thing. And did we really connect with it? Was there something that went on inside of us that said, this was more than just all the lists of the externals that happened? I think it's possible for us to actually worship God. But in order to do so, we have to do it biblically, and in order to worship God biblically, there must be a response to our heart, to our soul, to our mind, and to our bodies. Because our body is one of the one, one wonders that God gives us to worship him. And, and when we see in the Old Testament, we're going to see today, there's a very physical response to worship. And again, some of you are thinking like, but I'm a Baptist. You know, I can't raise my hands because, you know, my great-grandma would look down on me from heaven and wonder, you know, or whatever. And we're a little nervous, we're a little cautious. But I want to say it this way, because I want to outline this today, is a word we're going to see that, that fleshes itself out is this word, uh, Barak. It's an Old Testament Hebrew word, and it means to worship. Um, go ahead and put it on the screen there, Steve. It means to kneel, to adore, to praise, bending of the knee. This is the most used word in the Old Testament, specifically the, the book of Psalms, about 300 times this is the common word for worship, and it meant an action, and not just an internal action, an external action, and it literally meant to fall down, to prostrate oneself before, to humble yourself before, to revere, to have an emotion, and it describes worshipers falling on their faces before God in reverence, adoration, and thanks. That is the way the Israelites worshiped God or the false gods, the deities. And if you've been reading with us, they've been doing a lot of that, right? They would fall down before their idols, their false gods. They would literally bend their knee and they would do it in the temple of God. And for generations, for thousands of years, followers of Jesus have been doing the same thing. But in the Western world, we're a little uptight with that. We're a little more uh, conservative. We're not so demonstrative. If you go to the Eastern world, I love to go to East Africa. I love to go to other cultures, and people just are exuberant. It's so loud, your eardrums bleed. I remember in Kinshasa one time I was there, and, and I, I checked the meter, and it was like 115 decibels. Do you know what that will do to you? 
Yeah, it did to me. I didn't even bring my earplugs. I had to walk around. And there are laws about that now. I mean, they, you know, it's like they're so, so loud. But you could feel it, and people were just so excited as they were worshiping God. See, we like our worship a little more tempered, a little more refined, right? A little more out there. But you can't have a worship out there if it's going to move you here and it's going to cause you to react or even to emote for God. In fact, with this idea of worship, the number one word for worship in, in the Old Testament being kneeling down before you, I'd like to say this, and this is my big idea for the day, it's simply this. If you're not bowing, you're not worshiping. Now, some of you are going, like, have you seen my knees? I had scans done, right? Or it's like, I would feel weird about that. I'm not sure. Okay, so I don't just mean physically. I don't just mean externally. Bowing is also an internal thing. But I want to demonstrate for you today how when we actually encounter God, the glory of God, that it should cause such a response in us that we would immediately fall down before God. And I would say if we're not falling down before God, then we're not really acknowledging who he is. We're not really worshiping him. So as we uh, kind of walk through this, I, I want to get us to Ezekiel 1. Uh, you read this, if you're reading through the Bible, you've, you're, you're in the middle of Ezekiel right now. And it's a fascinating book. It's a terrifying book. It really is. But it starts with this amazing passage, and we're going to take a look at that. But I think that when we approach this, if you've got your Bibles, you could turn there. If you've got a sermon notes page, it's there. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 1. We're going to see, I like what Tozer said, A.W. Tozer said, the most important thing about you is what you think of when you think of God, the image that you have of God. And some of us have an image of God that is false, that is less than God. And we're going to see an image of God that completely blows us away. So in Ezekiel chapter 1, uh, we're going to look at these verses. The first three verses says this. It says, in July 31st of my 30th year, while I was in the, with the Judean exiles beside the Kibar River in Babylon, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. This happened during the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's captivity. The Lord gave this message to Ezekiel, son of Buzi, a priest, beside the Kibar River in the land of the Babylonians. And he felt the hand of the Lord take hold of him. Now, here's the setup for this. You know, if you've been reading in the Bible, you know a little bit of Bible history, is that the Israelites, both in the north and the south, Israel and Judah, they had rebelled against God. God had already taken the northern kingdoms away. Now he was taking the southern kingdoms away. And he was taking Judah away. He was taking Jerusalem captive. The Babylonians had come in under King Nebuchadnezzar, taking the first wave of exiles away. We see Daniel as a part of that. We see Ezekiel as a part of that. And it's five years after that moment. And Ezekiel is sitting there by a riverbank, really a canal, in a Jewish refugee camp. And he's lamenting his life because he's 30. And this would have been the time as a priestly young man, he would have been installed at the temple as a priest. He would have been able to represent God before his people. And here he is representing sin, brokenness, and captivity because of the rebellion of God's people. And you could imagine the state of his heart lamenting all of that pain that he should have been, he could have, he would have been in this place, but he's not anymore. He's just among the thousands upon thousands of refugees that are in a foreign land. And in that moment, 
God shows up, and the rest of the book of Ezekiel blows your mind away, literally, as you read it. And I want to walk through that, but in order to do so, I need you to help me out. I want you to take a piece of paper. If you grab one of those sermon notes on the way in, there's a blank page on the back, intentional for you. If you didn't get one of those, grab one of the sermon notes pages in the chair back in front of you or behind you, and grab a pen, uh, something to mark with, a pencil maybe, Because I want you to begin to draw what you see in this first chapter of Ezekiel. I want you to sketch it out. Now, you're not going to be judged by this, evaluated. Don't worry if someone's looking over your shoulder. Mike, you're not preparing yourself. I need to see. I need to see that you're all involved here because I might grade some of you on the way out, all right? When I was a kid, uh, we had the TV guide, and, and they would be this little thing called Draw Spiffy, and you turn it in and all that stuff. So some of you might get an academic scholarship for this. You might get a little art class because of this. But I want you to draw what you hear me read about a vision of the glory of God. And I'm going to do the same thing up here, all right? And then we'll walk through that. So we're going to kind of go slowly through the passage. So we know the setup. The setup is that Ezekiel is here lamenting and God bursts onto the scene. It says, as I looked, okay, you got your pens out, got your paper. As I looked, he says, I saw a great storm coming from the north. Don't worry about where north is, but start to draw a great storm. I don't know what that looks like for you. I'm drawing clouds. I'm going to get some lightning and thunder in there. A great storm rise, driving, coming from the north, driving before it a huge cloud. Okay, draw a cloud. That's easy, right? Just a cloud. That's like, you know, the easiest thing you can do. Draw a cloud. That flash with lightning Get your lightning bolts in there. You know what that looks like. You've seen Shazam, right? Get some lightning bolts in there. All right? And show them with the brilliant light. Now, this, now it gets a little more complicated. It says, there was fire inside the cloud, okay? Uh, we see this in the Old Testament when God is uh, leading the Israelites uh, through the desert, the wilderness. There's a pillar of, of cloud and fire, okay? So there's fire inside the cloud, and in the middle of the fire glowed something like gleaming amber. Good luck. I'm not sure how you're going to do that. It's just one color, right? Okay, from the center of the cloud, all right, you got a cloud, All right, Mike, show me your paper. I want to make sure. Yeah, okay, good. All right, that's good. Excellent, excellent. All right. Uh, Some of you are meditating on it because you don't want to be exposed as a non-artist, right? You can make stick people. That's okay. Seth, are you making stick people? All right, you're a really good artist if there's like polygons or something. Okay. All right, so, okay, here it says here, from the center of the cloud came four living beings, okay? So draw four big stick people, okay? All right, that's okay. Four living beings, And it says that looked human, all right, except, oh, that's great now, that they had four faces and four wings. How am I doing? How are you doing? You got faces and wings. Their legs were straight. That's good. It's always hard to bend on the knee on on an artist, right? And their feet had (laughs) hooves. Okay, well, that's okay. Their feet had hooves. This is weird. Like those of a calf and shown like burnished bronze. Again, you don't have a color, so keep going. Now here, it gets really complicated. Under each of their four wings, I could see human hands. I don't know how you could see hands under wings, but keep drawing here. So each of the four beings had four faces and four wings, okay? 
All right. The wings of each living being touch the wings of the beings beside it. I should have told you that in advance because you've already drawn your wings, right? But there are more wings than just two. And each one moves straight forward in any direction without turning around. I'm not sure how you're going to draw that. I'm kind of stuck here. Now, I just want to tell you this is the wildest and most uh, just bizarre vision of God that you ever see in the Bible. You see visions of God uh, with Moses. You see that in Exodus. You see in the very beginning of that story, God reveals himself and it's pretty glorious. You see visions of God throughout. You see a vision of God in Isaiah, right? And you see a vision of God in Revelation. Um, but, but those are not anything like this. This is weird. This is actually really bizarre. Okay, we're going to keep going. Just a couple more verses. Verses 10, 11, and 12. It says, each had a human face in the front, the face of a lion on the right side, the face of an ox on the left side, and the face of an eagle on the back. I don't know about that one. Each had two pairs of outstretched wings. One pair stretched out to touch the wings of the living beings on either side of it, and the other pair covered its body. Okay? They went in whatever direction the spirit chose, and they moved straight forward in any direction without turning around. How you doing? <laughs> I have to be honest, during my breakfast and Bible time this morning, I started sketching mine because I thought, if I'm going to ask them to do it, I better start doing it. So I had a head start, okay? Um, so I feel sorry for you if you didn't get a head start or you didn't read the whole thing first. Because how do you draw this thing, right? But these four beings, these living beings, later Ezekiel calls them cherubim. Uh, cherub, a plural for cherub is cherubim. And, and these are beings, we would call them angelic beings, not angels per se, but angelic beings that have a sole purpose of magnifying, glorifying God, even protecting the holiness of God, hovering around the throne of God. And they resent, I mean, they represent something huge. And it just so happens that later Ezekiel tells us that there was one of these beings amongst many that looked at that throne. One of those beings created to magnify the glory of God, to represent his holiness. And one of those beings, one of those cherubs, looked at the throne and said, I want that throne. I want to sit there. His name was Lucifer. We call him Satan the Accuser. He was a cherub. He is a cherub. He's a created being. He's bizarre looking, okay, he represents himself as an angel of light, but he looks just like this. And we see throughout the Bible these cherubs. They're not, you, have you ever seen like in the Renaissance period, they're little baby things with wings and arrows and everything in that cherub? That's not what a cherub is. I mean, good luck on Valentine's Day if you represented one of these babies on a card, right? It's like, that's freaky. It's like, where's love in that, right? It's terrifying, right? That's what a cherub is. And this is what Ezekiel sees representing the holiness of God. Okay, a couple more verses. The living beings looked like bright coals of fire or brilliant torches, and lightning seemed to flash back and forth amongst them. How you doing there? Yeah. And the living beings darted to and fro like flashes of lightning. I give up personally. Okay, so if, if you keep drawing, that's great. All right. I don't know how you're doing. Uh, every, show, me, show me what you got. Anybody? So again, I started early. Okay, so I got to write a title. Anybody? 
Okay, looking good, Jamie, very good, excellent. Anybody else? Wonderful, all right, you're not even trying. It's like you read it already, it's like give up, okay? All right, so, so let's think about this. What is Ezekiel seeing? Now later he's gonna see it's the glory of God. He's gonna tell us it's the glory of God. But we haven't even gotten to God yet. God isn't one of these beings. God isn't the cloud. He isn't the fire, the flashing back and forth. He goes on to say this, as I looked at these beings, I saw four wheels. Now it gets really weird. And that's why I stopped drawing, okay? Four wheels touching the ground beside them, one wheel belonging to each. The wheels sparkled as if made of barrel. All four wheels looked alike and were made the same. Each wheel had a second wheel turning crosswise within it. It sounds like a Batmobile, right? The beings could move in any of the four directions they faced without, faced without turning as they moved. The rims, you want to talk about rims? You got like a nice 20-inch rim, 22-inch rim. The rims of the four wheels were tall and frightening. I've seen some of that, you know, as I drive around Hillsboro. And they were covered with eyes all around, okay? Just little circles with a dot in the middle. That'll suffice for eyes. Seriously? Eyes all around? When the living beings moved, the wheels moved with them. When they flew upward, the wheels went up too. The spirit of the living beings was in the wheels. So wherever the spirit went, the wheels and the living beings also went. When the beings moved, the wheels moved. When the beings stopped, the wheels stopped. I think we get the idea. When the beings flew upward, the wheels rose upward. We get it. For the spirit of the living beings was in the wheels. Please stop drawing. It's impossible, right? Maybe it looks like an Iron Maiden album from the 70s or something like that. Cover, right? You know? It's like, I don't know how to draw this, right? Uh, I love that first Boston album. I'm like, that, that's kind of what I envision. Or ELO. It's not, it's not as pretty as that, right? He goes on in verses 22 to 25, says, spread out, from, uh, spread out above them was a surface like the sky, glittering like crystal. Beneath this surface, the wings of each living being stretched out to touch the other's wings, and each had two wings covering its body. I can't even, I can't even grasp this. As they flew, their wings sounded to me like waves crashing against the shore, or like the voice of the Almighty, or like the shouting of a mighty army. When they stopped, they let down their wings. As they stood with wings lowered, a voice spoke from beyond the crystal surface above them. When I was a kid, I was into all things science fiction and, you know, things like that. Not necessarily paranormal, but I liked sci-fi. And I remember watching a television show, late 70s, early 80s, called In Search Of. Anybody know what In Search Of was? Leonard Nimoy, okay, Dr. Spock. He narrated that, and he wrote a couple of the episodes. But it was always about the extra, the extraterrestrial, the extra, you know, stuff that we don't really know about. What if, what if? And it never answered the question. I remember, as a kid, one of the episodes that talked about UFOs, there were several of them he read this passage and Spock said this he said it's obvious that Ezekiel witnessed a UFO okay now I wasn't a follower of Christ later I became a follower of Christ realized the guy even though he's Vulcan he's wrong okay he didn't witness a UFO he witnessed an IFO an identified flying object called God but let's be honest if you were to hear anybody say something that what you've seen already you would think they were like tripping on acid or something, right? I mean, this is a great thing for Woodstock, but today, would anybody think this is real? This is unbelievable. This is so far beyond us. It's so far beyond even understanding, right? We can't even draw it out. But then he goes on to say this. 
as he begins to see God, he says, above this surface was something that looked like a throne. Now we're starting to get somewhere, at least in our understanding, because all of our visions of God include a throne, right? A place, a seat of power, of authority, of glory, made of blue lapis, lazuli. Um, a while back, I bought, um, I bought this lapis as a reminder to keep on my desk, as a reminder that um, I don't have a throne. Only he has a throne. And it's just a visual reminder that God's throne, at least in this vision, is made of lapis. It's this beautifully built, glorious throne, a permanent, heavy, weighted throne. He says here, and on this throne, high above was a figure whose appearance resembled a man. Now we get to what we often think about. But God isn't a man. He's not just a big man. God is spirit. He goes on to say, from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like gleaming amber, flickering like a fire. And from his waist down, he looked like a burning flame, shining with splendor. All around him was a glowing halo, like a rainbow shining in the clouds on a rainy day. That's a beautiful picture. And he concludes with these words. This is what the glory of the Lord looked like to me. This is a woodcut from the 16th century. Somebody in some attempt drew that. It's not bad. It's a whole lot better than what I drew, right? You know, got the wheel within a wheel and you got the eyes. You got the big old man on the throne, right? As we often see God. You've got the four beings with the faces or something like that. It's pretty chaotic, isn't it? It's pretty strange. It's just flat out weird, if you want to be honest, right? And, and he, he says this, this is what the glory of the Lord looked like to me. And I, I think that's a good way to put it. Whenever you see the glory of God, especially in like the end of the book, Revelation, John is doing his best to write down what he sees, and he uses images and symbols and metaphors, and we get lost in all that. Bible scholars forever have been trying to pinpoint exactly what the face of this and the wing of that and the eye here and try to interpret all that. I just think that this is just the presence of God, and it's so overwhelming, it blows his senses away, right? And so he writes, this is what the glory of the Lord looked like to me. Now notice, this is what I want to get to. When I saw it, I woke up from my slumber. No. No. I opened my eyes. No. I clapped a little harder. No. What he says, he says, I fell face down on the ground and I heard someone's voice speaking to me. And then the rest of the book is God calling Ezekiel to go and to preach to the people, right? What is Ezekiel's response to the overwhelming glory of God? It's nothing short of just, I'm a dead man, right? Remember Isaiah 6? When he saw the glory of God, what was his response? It's, woe is me, I'm undone. I'm, I'm, I'm completely toast. I, there's no way I'm going to make it past this. I know who I am, and I'm not even close to being able to be in the presence of this incredible, awesome God. And Ezekiel has the same response, and it's simply this, to fall face down. I want to say, the glory of God is beyond anything we could ever draw. It's beyond all comparison. It's beyond all comprehension. The glory of God is bigger than what our minds can ever construct. 
It's far greater than we can ever imagine. But I know in our attempts to worship God, I know for me when I you know, open my Bible in the morning and when I read and I pray, I, I, I try to imagine God. But if we're not careful, our imaginations either become idols or imaginations become so weak and watered down that they don't even closely resemble God and we worship a being far less than the real God. Now when you come in on a Sunday morning, what do you expect to experience? What do you expect to encounter? What are you hoping for? What are you walking away with? And I mean, we could add moving lights. One of my tenants here is we'll never have moving lights. We'll never have smoke. We'll never have mirrors, right? I don't want any of that. I don't want a concert here, right? You know, we're not going to have moving cameras. We're not going to do any of that. We're just going to be us playing the instruments, doing that. But have you ever been to one of those concerts? I mean, it's incredible. Years ago, we went to Coldplay. Went to see Coldplay. Uh, what's the name of the album? Yeah, Head Full of Dreams. Excellent album. We went there and we got these bands that we didn't know what they were. And we put them around our wrists and we walk in and through several opening acts, we finally get to Coldplay. And as they take the stage and they get, the, the, the Moda Center is packed and all of a sudden, all of our bands light up and it's crazy. Colors are everywhere. Lights are flying around. They're moving the colors of the bands throughout the whole place. It was the best light show I've ever been a part of. And heaven is so much bigger than that. It, it, just so, in case you're curious, better than Coldplay, all right? It, it, it really is. God's better than Coldplay, okay? Far better than we could ever imagine. Now, we could pump you up with the bass, and we could blast you with the sound, and we could get the lights, and we could get the smoke, and we could get the mirrors, and we could get the everything moving. But I just think that's a show compared to looking at God. And, and I don't know what your church background is and what your worship in the past looked like, but if it doesn't cause you to fall down before a holy, holy, holy God, you're not worshiping. Because if you're not bowing, you're not worshiping. The incomprehensible God is far greater than anything we could understand. This is what the glory of God, the Lord, looked like to me. It's like, I'm doing my best, people. All right, talk to me later in heaven when I get, if I, if I didn't get it all right, I don't really, if you sit there and you go, you missed something, fine. I was doing my best, right? He was drawing it out for us. I think there's a difference between people who come into church and say things like, I go to church, or I believe in God, or I believe in Jesus, and people who actually encounter God. People who have what we would call a face-to-face -face encounter with God. There's a big difference. It's easy to come to church. It's still, in our culture, easy to come to church. There's nothing threatening you from coming to church. Some of you are here for the first time. I know some of you are here at Sunrise for the first time. I met several of you. Some of you are coming back to church. Some of you have been to church. I met a gal out here that she's been serving in children's ministry longer than I've been at Sunrise, and I give Marsha a hug every Sunday. Some of you, this is your normal routine. But whether this is your first or your millionth time to church, do you come expecting an encounter with this majestic, incomprehensible God? And when you worship, and I don't mean sing, I mean this, everything we do here, do internally, do you bow down before him?
And even externally, do you represent that submission to him, that reverence for him? If not, I don't think you're worshiping. I don't think you're worshiping. Then what are we doing? Maybe we're just coming to church. I think the glory of God requires a response as Ezekiel did. He just fell down before God. He just had this response. What else could you do, right? In Isaiah 6, what else could Isaiah do but to fall down before God and say, woe is me because it's holy, holy God, holy, holy, holy God. I'm sinful, sinful, sinful. I'm woe, 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 right? What is the last thing that Isaiah thinks is, I could be good enough. What is the last thing Ezekiel thinks is like, I think I could withstand this presence. Not, a, not even a clue to that. He bows down. They bow down. They fall down before a holy, holy God. It, it, sometimes in, in the Bible, in the words of the Psalms, this barak, this idea of falling down before God implies humbling yourself. Humbling yourself. Sometimes it implies surrendering yourself to God or, or to a king because it was used of you know, earthly gods or earthly people or earthly lords or just, you know, today we would call them important people, right? It also implies worshiping and adoring. And I think it's all of this in this case that Ezekiel falls down, humbly submits. He humbles himself and he honors and worships God. I wrote it this way. You can't come into the light of God's glory without noticing more of your own darkness. You can't come into the presence of God's purity without recognizing some of your own impurity. And you can't come into the presence of God's magnificent without noticing more of your own, more and more of your own weaknesses and insecurities and smallness. I think one of the marks that you really are encountering God is he just knocks you, knocks you on your tail. He just knocks you off your high horse, we might say, right? And you fall down before him. That's what Paul did when he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, right? Just knocked, just knocked down. And he fell before him. He was blinded by him. Have you fallen down before God lately? Now you're thinking, okay, but I don't know what this looks like in my life. How would we do this? As, you know, I, I gotta go to work. You know, I start school in a week or two. And how would I translate this into my life? In fact, how could... How could I even connect with this? Well, not only is the glory of God incomprehensible, and not only does the glory of God require response, the beautiful thing about this glorious God is that he's come down in a person. He's actually contained himself in a body so that we can relate to him, so that we can encounter him. And his name is Jesus. God actually showed up. All of that, Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1, Revelation 4, all of that glory showed up in a human body when a baby was born 2,000 years ago. And Jesus lived and he breathed and he walked this earth. Paul says it this way in Colossians 1.15. He says this, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. This idea is the exact stamp or representation. When <laughs> Jesus said, when you've, you know, you want to see the Father, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father, it's like, that's literal, right? You're looking at me, you're looking at the Father, right? God is spirit, okay, but now God is contained in a body in Jesus. The exact representation. Jesus is the one who's made the invisible God visible, and you and I get to encounter him. 
And we get to fall before him. Uh, also there, you see that for in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human form, in bodily form. Fullness means the sum total of all of it, all the attributes, all the glory. But here's the beauty is that God stepped down into our earthly experience and he, as it says in Philippians 2, he humbled himself and he became a man. He humbled himself and took on our flesh. And while he was here, he voluntarily gave up some of that, pushed it aside so that he could be with us. And it's this mystical idea of this incarnation coming down in the flesh. How could the glory, the radiance of God, well, he willingly laid aside some of that so that we could know him. He came down in the dirt, in the dust, in the filth of his humanity, and he walked among hurting and broken people so that those hurting and broken people could see God, could relate to God. The holiest man that ever walked the planet hung out with the unholiest of people because God came down in the form of a man. He took on flesh in the form of Jesus. I believe the glory of God requires a response. Will you bow before him and worship him or stand and ignore him? One day, Paul writes this in Philippians chapter two. He says, therefore, God elevated him. This is after the kenosis is called the humbling experience, the emptying. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. That's it. Worship fall down, prostrate before him, bow down in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So friends, one day you're gonna bow, right? One day we're all gonna bow before him. We're gonna fall face down because he is worthy of it. He is Lord of Lords, he's King of Kings. He's the only one to be worshiped. One day it's gonna happen. What does it look like in your life today? The fullness of God came down in human form and we ignored him, we despised him, we rejected him, we beat him, we crucified him. He did all that willingly so one day we would bear his glory. One day we would reflect his image. One day we would be clothed in righteousness so that we could have a relationship with this holy, holy, holy God. You want to connect to that vision of Ezekiel 1? It's Jesus. You want to connect to the creator of the universe? It's Jesus. You want to know God intimately and be acquainted with him? It's Jesus. Jesus is the way to God because he is God. He is the truth and the path to us. He is the very life that would give us life. And it's all contained in a human body that's now glorified. But that was broken, was beaten, was ruined, was destroyed was crucified, and he did it for you and for me. That same God that sat up on that throne made of this blue stone with the glory of the radiance of God all around him, those four living beings worshiping him, all contained in a body called Jesus. And now he invites you to follow him. He invites you to know him. And when you know him, you know the Father. You know the Spirit because you know the Son. What is your response? What is your response to a holy, holy, holy God today? Because I just want to repeat it one more time. If you're not bowing, you're not worshiping.
And some of us need to be reminded of that because we've gotten a little complacent with God. We've gotten a little used to God. Some of us need to, in the songs that we sing and in the moment that you'll have today, in the week you'll have, you need to come into this presence of God and confess that you've called him far less than what he is. You've revered him far less than what he is. Others of you, maybe for the first time, you get to come and bow before him and call him Lord and call him Savior and call him the one who died for you. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you for your glory. I thank you for your splendor. I thank you that you as the God of the universe, you heaped up the mountains, you scooped out the oceans and you flung the stars out into the universe and we can have a relationship with you through Jesus Christ. Father, may we not just yawn at this, but may we in this life that we live bow before you because one day we will all bow and we will all bend our knee to you, some acknowledging you as Lord and Savior, others denying you and pushing you away for all eternity. I pray that we in this room, we watching on video, we acknowledge you as the great God and Savior who's worthy of all of our praise. And we maybe do some course correction in our own heart about how we worship you and how we see you so that our worship is true and honoring. We pray in the name of Christ, amen.